Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Music, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Kristen Turner, and my guest today is Andrea Bowman, author of Musical Solidarities, Political Action and Music in Late 20th Century Poland, published by Oxford University Press. In 1980, a group of Polish shipyard workers created a new trade union called Solidarity. Just 10 years later, one of its founders, Lech Walesa, was elected president of Poland. Bowman examines the music of dissension and protest during this turbulent decade in Polish history. But this book is no simple retelling of significant events or an examination of important political anthems, although, of course, she does this as well. Instead, she grounds her study in the media networks and material culture by which music circulated throughout Poland and internationally, from state-sanctioned art music festivals to clandestine recordings distributed via cassette tapes. She considers how different kinds of music contributed to the civil resilience of a country under martial law, while at the same time amplifying and narrating the Solidarity Movement and its leaders. Hello, Andrea. It's great to have you on New Books in Music today. Thank you so much for having me, Kristen. So how did you come by this topic? As you note in your book, Poland is a pretty unusual country for European and North American musicologists to study. And in fact, there's not even that much about the history of Poland in English. So how did you come to this area uh, to, um, I guess, focus on as you uh, worked on the larger topic of music and politics? I really got interested in studying the cultural history of, um, of music in Polish lands um, in, uh, through an interest actually in socialism, in music and socialism, in how artists, uh, composers, um, politicians, organizers thought that uh, a political ideology like socialism might affect or even inspire changes in musical life. So actually, when I was a student, um, one of the things I was doing is thinking about this more comparatively. I was interested in projects in the United States that were driven by um, passionate socialist commitments. Um, I was interested in the way in which um, East German and West German history during the Cold War really um, diverged. And I was interested in thinking about how the different countries of um, what we tend to think of as East Central Europe um, how, how they have different musical histories during the Cold War. Um, this is kind of like almost a sort of scientific approach where I'm thinking like, oh, let's run these different case studies and compare them and see what factors produce what different outcomes. Um, this is pretty naive and foolish of me. Maybe um, if I wanted to be kind to my past self, I might say ambitious. Um, but it was as... Eh, as you say, like kind of a response to the way in which Western European narratives of music history dominate not just music historiography, but also how we think about uh, Western music historiography generally. So we think about the United States as in the shadow of Western Europe in the process sort of um, placing East, Eastern Europe on the periphery as well. Um, and you can think about the ways in which like early recordings in the United States called ethnic recordings when they're by Lithuanian Americans and Polish Americans um, and not necessarily the case in terms of French, French Americans and, and likewise. Um, so I was 
I was wanting to kind of challenge that centripetal force of Western Europe and of English language um, circulations of, let's say, even capitalist circulations, um, thinking about 20th century history. Um, so I had this ambitious project where I was going to do all of these things and learn all of these languages. And I, I basically just stumbled in Poland because I, um, first of all, needed to learn a language and I started there uh, and um, and found myself in this um, world of archives, stories, um, sounds, music that I just hadn't had a lot of exposure to both in my education um, in the United States and also having studied in um, Berlin, in Germany, and outside of London in the United Kingdom after my undergraduate years. So I just felt like um, uh, my naivete like came back to, to really, um, yeah, just I, I just saw it um, and felt like there was a lot to learn and a lot of actually, you know, to use a kind of uncomfortable metaphor, like a lot of uncharted territory a lot of room for scholarly play stories that hadn't been told. So they didn't have dominant narratives, at least in music studies. Little did I know that um, the Polish 1980s and really Polish um, history during the Cold War in general built up of its own myths and its old own hegemonic narratives. Um, and that I would have to learn those in order to figure out where my research, where the stories that I heard from my research associates, how they would play out. Um, so it's kind of coincidence. It's kind of because um, just from a historian's perspective, Poland has a very special history, as do, of course, most countries um, during the Cold War, in that um, music um, uh, received a lot more wiggle room. That's, that's the easiest way to understand it than a lot of the other countries in which state socialist governments were being established. Um, so the Communist Party sort of agreed with the composer's union. This is a facile um, facile summary, but they agreed with the Polish composer's union's argument that music didn't have as much political potential or political danger as the other arts. Um, this is in contrast to kind of some of the post-Second um, post, uh, World War narratives, both in the Soviet Union and in places like West Germany, where a reckoning with the Nazi party's abuse of music had to happen, um, and which had very different results for musical styles that were supported by the state. Um, so unlike, uh, so basically a lot of different kinds, different genres of music, including American ones or nominally American ones like jazz um, and ones that were associated with Central Europe um, to which Poland belongs, uh, like the musical avant-garde, these were supported by state institutions. Um, so it meant that there was a lot, a, a kind of different history to, to uncover um, Poland as neither West nor East as a story, a history that's not predictable, um, at least coming from my certainly biased American perspective, where I'd been fed the Cold War propaganda that everything East of Berlin was behind backwards um, deficient, um, abject, um, all of these kind of uh, stories that Americans were told in popular culture, but also in official history books um, about um, global culture in the second half of the 20th century that puts Eastern Europe sort of behind the West um, and helps narrate um, story of American Well, before we get into that, actually, because that was one of the things I wanted to talk about was 
is what you've done to to push against that narrative. But maybe first, just to make sure we're all on the same page, could you give us the two-minute version of the historical context of what was going on in Poland in the period that you were looking at, just, um, just to make sure we all know the same thing? Because as you say, um, uh, we don't talk about Eastern Europe nearly as we should in um, in American uh, historiography, musical or otherwise. And so I, I'm sure there are some people that will sort of have vaguely heard of this, but don't know any details. Yeah. So uh, we tend to think of the 70s and 80s, 1970s and 80s, that is, as a kind of period of late socialism, where there was there were waves of um, economic revitalization um, in Eastern Europe where um, a state-regulated economy started to enable certain aspects of capitalism. Um, for example, uh, you could there were record labels run by the state, um, and, but also uh, department stores. There were um, where, where bands had to, or where you could, sort of by competing um, uh, brands of clothing. Um, there was uh, a, a general sort of uh, a sense of an everyday that, um, that wasn't, um, that, how would I describe this? I would say we, we tend to think, uh, when, when in the United States we think about life um, under communism in Eastern Europe, we think of rebuilding efforts in the 1950s, of gray days, of empty shelves. Um, in the 1970s, that's not no longer the case. There are, um, you know, cherished television programs. There's an investment in mass culture that's not just loaded with state propaganda, but with ideas about entertainment. Um, there are crooning pop stars. There are rock bands where people have hair like the Beatles. Um, there are students studying abroad in exchange programs, both with the Soviet Union and with Western European counterparts. So there's a kind of porosity to the Iron Curtain at this moment in history, as the Soviet Union is um, seeking out ways to continue to be a stable global um, superpower. Um, and so in, in, in Warsaw, what you have is an increased... Um, or uh, uh, not in Warsaw, but rather in Poland, we can think about like, I guess you told me two minutes. Ah. Um, uh, basically, we can think of this is precisely the environment that allows student movements to get off the ground, especially more mainstream ones that centralize and bring together um, divergent um, political opinions against um, against the powers that be. So um, in this moment, you get um, increased student engagement also increased um, energy from the Catholic Church. One of the most important um, events in Polish history during the 20th century was the nomination or the selection of Pope John Paul II, um, who uh, was himself Polish, to lead the Catholic Church, um, which gave the nation um, a sense of incredible patriotic pride. Um, it's a nation where... 90% um, of the population identifies as Roman Catholic or identified as Roman Catholic during the Cold War. Um, and so Polish Catholic identity and Polish identity are, are wound up together, if not um, in a spiritual way, then at least in a symbolic order for, the, for, the, for, the, for nationalism. 
Um, so at the beginning of the decade, these student movements, the involvement of the clergy and the Catholic Church in negotiating change, political change, um, led to an environment filled with interpersonal networks, um, more creative freedom, um, a lot of international connections and networks um, that really paved the way for what would become a decade of incredible change with highs and lows um, where it wasn't always clear that state socialism would come to an end, but it was clear that state socialism was changing and the rules of the game were changing along the way, first with the legalization of the Solidarity Trade Union, but then as that union um, was pushed underground during martial law in December 1981, um, a sort of activated underground or unofficial is the term that's used in the Eastern European context, uh, network of, of, of organizers who had decades of experience um, organizing, communicating, arguing with each other even, and um, who were invested in um, protecting, advocating for, and preserving Polish national identity or even national sovereignty or autonomy um, within a Cold War context in which the nation had been treated very much like a pawn. First, between um, in the 19th century, three empires, the Habsburg Empire, the Prussian Empire, and the Russian Empire, um, which had divided up Poland. Um, and that sort of loss of independence in the 19th century um, is a kind of historical wound that was being renegotiated after um, first the Nazi Germany's um, invasion of Poland and the so subsequent Soviet one in 1939, and then um, the imposition of state socialism after the Second World War. So you have these sort of chains of historical traumas that are... Um, are, are instigating, fueling, and shaping um, Polish nationalist movements. And that's the kind of backdrop for the granular analysis that I try to do of sound, sonic environments, um, media networks and communication, but also the kind of atmosphere for art music composition, especially as a kind of affective or emotional catharsis um, in dealing with political let's say, turmoil, unrest, but also just maybe instability and precarity. Um, so that these are sort of affective atmospheres, um, you know, uh, zones that people find themselves in variously throughout the 1980s until this moment of euphoria um, that globally happens with the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989, but slowly happens with the negotiation of political change. Um, and it toward um, an end of state socialism in Poland um, that sort of becomes the, 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 the dominant lens through which we understand the 80s retrospectively or remember the 80s retrospectively. Well, that in, is very helpful. You know, Thank you. Um, and I am going to date myself, but I was in high school and college during the solidarity years. And so I know my understanding of what was going on was really colored by the Cold War and by the discourse of the Cold War in the United States. And as you said, retrospectively, we see, oh, that was sort of the beginning of the end until you get to the fall of the Berlin Wall. But um, as you were saying earlier in your first answer, that has also really colored the way that 
um, that history has been told, at least sort of the first half of that history was told. What do you think that you do in your book that maybe nuances or counters or challenges that sort of way of understanding um, uh, the solidarity movement, those, those years of the 80s in, in Poland? In my book, what I try and do is understand the solidarity movement um, as a story that we tell ourselves about how social movements work and how social movements come to have meaning, whether we're participating in the organizing or as you kind of positioned yourself, observing the social movement and from afar and understanding it as a kind of symbol of the fact that the people broadly can change society. I think one of the things like the like the anthem, uh, the, the protest anthem itself, one of the reasons we love social movements is because they stand in for a notion that um, people can have a voice and that voice is meaningful and has an effect. Um, that, you know, if you sing together, quote unquote, in harmony, um, that that represents um, a real a way of working together, right? Working together in harmony, coordinating your efforts. And I think that um, what I do in the book is trace trace this idea. Um, like, what are the sort of like modes of understanding um, uh, sound and music to do that work? So I start out the book just by kind of thinking about sound, thinking about how sound is necessary for the kind of communication and the network that social movements are built on. And I, and then I ground that in specifically how the solidarity movement used it, which was very much of its time using pamphletry, using cassettes, using underground radio stations, using handwritten notes, sometimes using music as a code, right? A song that everyone knows what it's supposed to mean, but that meaning isn't said in the text, in the lyrics that are sung. Um, and then I kind of move through different vectors of how sound and protest have meaning for us um, in the stories that we tell about social movements. So in answer to your question, I would say uh, the chapter that really tries to get at this idea of uh, or sort of un unravel the idea of of solidarity as this moment of, you know, Western democracy defeating communism is something like the, the chapter on silence that I have, which delves into the months immediately following martial law um, declaration in Poland. So starting mid-December, the cold of winter, uh, martial law is declared essentially squashing any, um, any legitimacy um, of the, of the solidarity movement, imprisoning or at least detaining many of its members, including some um, instrumentalists who played in orchestras, some music journalists who worked for the radio, who had spoken about solidarity and who basically they, the government took down not just the leaders of the opposition, but also some of the people who were sort of routinely involved in the mechanisms of distribution. Um, and this this time is really imagined, especially the first three months, as one in which um, the government became viciously threatening. Um, it's remembered as this moment where um, you can't, a, a symbolic moment that tells us that we can't trust governments, that totalitarian moves can be mobilized at any point in time. Um, 
and that civil liberty is not something we can take for granted. Um, but what I also, while I'm not undermining that, certainly not that memory um, or that emotional fear that this moment um, came to symbolize, what I do do is, is spend time looking through, listening to um, diaries, recordings made, and um, stories told about um, life that continued during that time. So um, concerts that happened in homes, um, unofficial, underground, not supported through the state networks. Um, what kinds of, how did music and sound animate those spaces and become a way for people to um, combat even heal some of the traumas that had been um, uh, triggered by this declaration. But I also spend a lot of time looking at how rich intellectually the life um, that people held while in detention were and how powerful music was as a way for people to communicate, first on a symbolic level. So one of the things that happened is people celebrated um, the Christmas holidays in prison, in detention, um, and Christmas carols were retexted to narrate responses to the government, um, to organize conversations about um, values among the opposition. Um, I think also one of the things that I try to do is show the, the meeting places and the frictions among different components of the opposition. So to, to highlight that while the movement was underfoot, it was never clear and coherent or homogenous. So looking at the ways in which the um, socialist um, branches of the intelligentsia who were so committed um, had friction with some of the members of the clergy, um, the ways in which um, elements of misogyny or certain um, more right-wing brands of patriotism were really present in the movement. Um, that comes out in this, the final chapter of my book, which is called Chorus, which shows the way that a chorus doesn't just bring together people in harmony, it also can bring together discordant voices. Um, so I look at a very powerful song in Polish history um, it's called, it translated into English as God Save Poland, but it's a 19th century hymn that has nationalist undertones and its text has been changed so many times in, since um, the early 19th century. And it was retexted again and sung sort of spontaneously throughout many of the opposition's gatherings um, with different texts. But it's a, it's, a, it's a hymn about the Virgin Mary. And it's really interesting to see the moments in which it's given a kind of abrasive or almost, um, or almost anti-Semitic language. Um, it's also used and retexted by scouting troops to, um, you know, negotiate difference among those individuals. Um, basically, I want to show a kind of plurality of the social movement and show that through music, you can see both some of the moments where people were really standing together and singing, um, and some of the moments in which there was friction um, and in which power had to One be One of the things that I found really interesting, actually, that picks up on what you were just saying is um, you do focus on a couple of songs that were really meaningful. One of them is God Save Poland. There's another, the Polish National Anthem. And I was really struck by how Polish nationalism and Polish national songs were so important, which I think of as being a little bit unusual in a political movement, because usually those are the kinds of 
um, you know, th those are so associated with the government. And you, so you push against those rather than um, incorporate them as part of political dissent. Can you talk a little bit about why that happened in the solidarity movement, that it, this um, Polish nationalism was such an important aspect of it, as well as Polish national music? That's an interesting perspective. Um, I think that uh, you've put your finger on one of the ways in which um, my book ends up telling a story that is certainly more, more mainstream or more top-down of the opposition than one might. Um, so there would certainly be ways to look at subcultures, um, uh, especially um, there's a whole movement called independent culture um, that was really skeptical of national symbols, especially as it's kind of easy to imagine from a from a from a Western perspective, um, especially you know punk punk groups where um, student culture, but also kind of a a, a, a rampant and un, unsystematic anarchy. Uh, shaped, shaped as just kind of like an affective loudness, let's say. Um, and I, I purposely don't integrate those um, aspects, those subcultures into my book, not because they aren't incredibly important in understanding um, the sort of rich variety of musics that, that different groups um, came to identify with their experience of the 1980s, but because there was never a strategic way um, that the opposition or the leaders who were, you know, kind of a generation older of the opposition, they could never really respond to those, those popular musics. They turned more to the popular musics of say, or the, the kinds of genres that had been important in Czechoslovakia in the 1960s, but also in France and in the United States in the early 1960s. So things like singer-songwriter music, um, as well as where you have this idea of like the individual expressing their subjectivity, but also an individual who's a storyteller. So I think one of the things that national music does um, for the Polish opposition is it tells a story of the Polish nation in which um, the fact that um, um, it is subjugated as a state within the Warsaw Pact um, doesn't make sense or needs to necessarily come to an end. So um, the national anthem is itself a song about um, working towards independence. It's not a song that was written in a moment of Polish independence. Um, it's uh, sort of paradoxical refrain is um, talks about the fact that Poland is still alive as long as it has not perished. So it's a kind of pathetic in a in a um, in in a, in a in a sentimental sense of the word um, national anthem um, in that it's not it doesn't come at the moment of triumph, but in this kind of aspirational or, you know, what I, what I describe as at some points in the, in the book as also kind of, it's kind of like the upbeat to the moment of political um, reckoning. Um, so, 
singing that song allows people to draw a connection between themselves as Polish citizens and the very alive and cultural memory moment of that partition of Poland in the 19th century that I mentioned. Um, Other national symbols were important because of the traumatic losses of World War II on Polish lands. Um, It's what historians of Eastern Europe have maybe focused on in their their histories of mid-20th century Poland is the way in which wartime trauma um, was told um, or remembered as put in the container of a a national trauma in order to kind of obscure um, or maybe even hide some of the ways in which wartime experiences weren't the same, right? So an assimilated Jewish family that was in hiding during the war um, oftentimes did not narrate that story, but instead narrated themselves as Polish in the post-war period and clung to some of the same songs and symbols um, that were so important for the opposition. I think another component of, um, of the way that sort of national music plays out here is actually a pride in a lot of the musical material that was produced in Poland in the 19th and 20th century, beginning with the heroic composer who's celebrated both as kind of popular music um, uh, uh, entertainer, um, as a performer, Chopin, but also as, of course, artistic genius and inspired poet, um, whose um, music has been up woven into uh, Polish national identity since the 19th century, but particularly anew in the post-war period in the 1940s and 50s. Um, Celebrating Chopin was always an important part of the soft diplomacy that the Polish, uh, the People's Republic of Poland, so that's the state socialist government, um, uh, did. Um, People were also very proud of um, the... uh, Polish musical avant-garde, just as they were proud of the Polish um, film, um, especially cinematography um, in in the communist period, um, because it had achieved global success. So composers like Krzysztof Penderecki, who just recently passed away at the beginning of um, uh, the first half of 2020, um, and Witold Wutyswowski, who wrote symphonic works, and uh, Henryk Mikołaj uh, Gorecki wrote symphonic works that were played by um, the world's top orchestras and beloved um, by Western audiences. Um, Gorecki's Third Symphony is one of the top-selling um, commercial recordings of classical music in the 20th century. Um, so there's a way in which um, these musical celebrities are really important um, because they put Poland on the map. And so one of the things that I wrestle with is the way that um, both some of the, the people I spoke with in Poland are eager to understand the relationship between these notable and known notorious musicians and the opposition. So they want to know what their musical heroes are thinking politically. But I'm also interested in how music critics in the United States and in the UK and in Germany tell stories about um, Polish protest by writing about the music that they know. Uh, And interestingly, they don't care to engage with Polish popular musics, um, probably 
that's there's a kind of facile explanation for that, which is um, language, a language barrier. Um, I think within Poland, um, especially among the intelligentsia, so in urban contexts, at universities, student culture, but also within the artists' organizations that I'm talking about, there's just an incredible division between composed art music and other musics. Um, there's an incredible hierarchy um, that really, at a certain point, considers things like symphonies music, but songs, especially sung poetry, not music. That is considered a kind of um, first and foremost poetic literary form of expression. And one of the things that's probably not clear to U.S. audiences, um, maybe less sensical, is that it was actually poets and writers who were under some of the most scrutiny um, from this Polish state, which meant that there was kind of a disconnect between the social communities of the um, literary scene and the music scene, even though they were, of course, friends and artistic collaborators. Um, um, but in terms of political collaborations, um, a lot of a lot more of more figures in the literary world were were under scrutiny, and then as a result, kind of went out on a limb and participated in the um, solidarity movement than musicians who tended to um, stand back, um, especially those um, sort of global global success stories who I mentioned. Um, there were, of course, many students, um, many more experimental composers, um, also composers abroad who, um, who, who used their musical compositions to try and, as members of the diaspora, you know, take a, emotionally work through a relationship to their homeland um, by, by writing about solidarity or writing about some of the events of solidarity. Um, yeah, but it's an interesting question to think about it in terms of like, what is national music? You know, is, is, is uh, I write at one point about a symphony called the Polish symphony, um, which incorporates some of these hymns um, from the Catholic church, specifically Polish hymns, um, Polish resistance songs from World War II, um, these kinds of things, um, you know, that, that, um, that kind of composition seems very, very much of its moment, very much trying to communicate to an audience that has these older protest songs from the 19th century ringing in their ears, rather than an audience that's looking for new ways of configuring a kind of society, um, or a social enactment of, of, of a, of a future in, in musical genres such that we see in something like, um, punk or, um, or some of the other, um, uh, musical genres that in the UK were associated with political movements for political change in the 1980s. The other thing that struck me, um, not only about how nationalism was so important was also how important historical commemoration of one kind or another was to um, the the action of protest. So you talk about how a lot of protest um, marches were not a march, but sort of a, a meet or a, a, a gathering of people was really um, a small gathering of people who are commemorating some aspect of Polish history or several really important events were 
around the mass uh, commemoration masses for people who had died so a um, or had been murdered by the state. So uh, strikers who were killed in 1970 by police or Yezhi Papawushko, who was a a um, a priest who was murdered by this um, the security services. So can you talk a little bit about this idea of, I don't know if it's commemoration of history or if it's commemoration of trauma that is important to not only the movement as a protest movement, but also the, the musical um, expression because of that? Yeah, I think that we tend to, as... Um, this is kind of getting back to like, wh- why do we tell stories about um, music and protest? Why is it so ex- so important to 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 affirm for ourselves, um, either as people living in the twenty first century in a time of global instability and um, national precarity, um, a time when inequalities are more visible than ever? Um, we find ourselves talking more and more about music, um, and forward momentum, right? So when we look at histories, we tend to, we have tended, scholars have tended to focus on the moments that give people hope. One of the things I found just coming in as an outsider to this story is that when I, I, I one of the things I did as part of my research was actually just talk to people, um, talk to people, members of, you know, congregations, um, religious congregations, um, whether, you know, the Reformed Jewish community um, in 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 Warsaw, but also many many um, Catholic parishes. Is just talk with elder generations about their experiences at that time, and the moments of hope were not the moments that had the most kind of um, weight in their memories of this time. Um, now, of course, that's in part a product of when I was doing my research in 2009, 2010, 2011, um, when uh, actually while I was living in Warsaw, um, there was a plane crash um, in which uh, 90, oh, over 90 governmental dignitaries and cultural figures were uh, perished instantly when the plane crashed in Smolensk um, in Ukraine. Um, and this was experienced again as a trauma, um, one in one that casts the Polish nation, and especially sort of like um, its capacity to to um, you know uh, to to I guess to um, transform itself into an autonomous and confident and powerful European nation, member of the European Union, put that into question. Um, and so um, emotions were running high, but also kind of worry was there. Um, and so a lot of the stories that people would tell me began, people didn't want to talk about strikes. They didn't want to talk about, um, you know, their sort of the moments of, of happiness um, when, I, when I just sat with them. Um, they, they wanted to talk about these moments of solace, um, moments that still gave them solace. Um, and so some of them are more public moments, like the ones you're talking about, because as I've kind of intimated, a lot of my book is about shared moments of musical work, um, not necessarily private ones, I'm not looking at subcultures, I'm not looking at subversive scenes, um, looking at kind of like a, a sort of flavor of the moment. Um, but 
you know, some people would talk about um, how they, they saved one cassette that circulated among the opposition. And it was actually wasn't something that had, you know, like an important political essay read aloud on it. It wasn't something that had um, even their favorite um favorite album by one of the the singer songwriters who who played with guitar um the most notable one um or one of the most cherished ones is someone named Jacek Kaczmarski but there were others as well um but they would talk about how they saved a, a cassette that was filled with lullabies because they remembered singing lullabies to their child um to their then infant child with that um with to that cassette um and i think these moments of commemoration often are not the bombastic moments of commemoration or national coherence that we, um, we might, you might have, but actually ones in which, yeah, like you're suggesting trauma is being experienced, but also history is being retold. Um, and, um, those were very important and they've become more important in the, in the two decades since, um, or I guess three decades since, um, since 1989. And uh, at the time when I was doing research, it had been just two decades. So I think that's one other reason people were, were really interested in talking about them. Um, so the death of um, Father Jerzy Popiewuszko, which was at the hands of two agents of the Polish secret police, um, was an incredibly important moment for um, to... to a shared moment of national loss. Um, one thinks of other times in American history when the assassination, um, which is what Popiuszko's death was experienced as um, of, of a leader, um, really felt as though it was an attack on the entirety of a social movement. Um, and uh, Popiuszko had been important, actually not precisely because he wasn't a major figure in the Polish Catholic Church. He was a priest who was a kind of everyman. He had a rural upbringing, which allowed non-urban um, Catholics to relate to him. Um, he traveled around the country in a car after the formation of the Solidarity Union, giving, um, holding sermons to w- workers on strike, to offering solidarity in the form of worship. Um, and so in, in a way, he was repeating, um, you know, Catholic liturgy is built on all kinds of structures of, of ritual repetition. And he, his work was a part of that, a kind of continuation of the normal of what's needed for human survival um, among, among um, faith communities. Um, and, he, and he was a rather young person. And so he, he symbolized for many people... Um, you know, a kind of access um, to political work that was in the mundane care that humans can offer each other. Um, one of the um, music critics who was really involved with um, some of the organizing work around Papuushko's parish in Warsaw was someone who got involved because he was interested in donating clothes to and food, clothes to um, uh, detained prisoners, but also food to the families that have been left behind um, when when organizers were um, were arrested. So you know, it's it's not sort of heroic political work that comes in the dreaming up of ideas for political change, but it's a mutual aid network um, driven by the Catholic Church. 
And people felt a kind of, there was a kind of humility to his person that was captured most in his voice, um, which was kind of unremarkable. He was bad at singing. Um, the chant of Catholic services is not designed or um, even not even theologically sort of um, interpreted as something where beauty or aesthetic evaluation is at stake. Um, but it became an access to both God and Popiewuszko's model of personhood. So when he was assassinated by members of the Secret Service, um, and he disappeared for a while and his fate was unknown, it, it kind of gashed open this huge wound that people experienced as their own. Um, but that also meant you kind of called into question, like, what are the sort of bare acts of humanity that can, that like, why are those um, subject to, to, to violence? Um, he was seen as a kind of nonpartisan activist, if you will. Um, and I think, so I think when people were writing pieces about him, singing songs in commemoration of him, uh, his reenacting his masses um, that he held, um, holding vigil rather, um, to, mark, to mark the month since his loss, I think they were striving to, to, to work toward a kind of normalcy and to keep the community that his work had helped form alive. And so in a way, it's, it's sort of hard to say, oh, like this, is, this, this can be captured in, you know, um, in something like a, it, can't, it, can't, it kind of can't be reproduced. It's so contextually specific. And I think that that's one of the reasons that it, it offered sort of care to people at the time. And it's through that embodied experience, um, which kind of continues, there were still masses held in his honor um, mostly older individuals who who would have been at least alive during the time of his original uh, or of his of his um, of his work, um, uh, they they continue into the present. Um, they're pushed and pulled in all sorts of new political directions, but they continue the memories of those, the memories of his voice, even listening to his voice again or imagining his voice to be comforting still. These are all ways of in which political work can extend care. That is something like, you know, the, the work of mourning, um, as you mentioned, um, in, in terms of offering people sort of catharsis and and calm, rather than yeah, moments of defiance and strength. Right. So there's a kind of way in which what I found um, in noting the power of commemoration is is not just the moments of sort of like national pride, but moments in which um, national vulnerability was communicated, rearticulated, even sensationalized, I will say, um, used not always toward, um, toward inclusive ends. Because of course, um, an emphasis on the Catholic Church um, is not something that can necessarily, um, not necessarily can also, um, but invite, anyone to feel to feel represented and heard and and cared for um one other aspect of it that i wanted to bring out and since we're we're getting close towards the end of our time together i'll i'll make this my last question but i uh was struck by how some of the music you were talking about and some of the ways of demonstrating was just really sarcastic there's a lot of sort of 
maybe it's cynicism or political satire going on to the point where it felt sort of almost punkish to me. It reminded me maybe of Pussy Riot a little bit, which is, of course, the I don't know if you call it a music group or a political collective of women in, in Russia that um, uh, have have uh, engaged in political um, work. And, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that aspect of it. That is not this sort of trauma or commemoration aspect. It's not the national aspect, but another way of um, communicating their ideas. Yeah, it's a wonderful question to kind of close out on because I think I think you put your finger on, you know, if I'm kind of letting Popiewuszka tell this story of like intimate moments in the opposition, um, moments where calm reflection did, did important work to, to, to help people feel a sense of belonging or maybe feel a sense of solace. Um, I think that there are other ways in which intimacy is enacted in playful and joyful moments. Um, and I think it does have a lot to do with with a with a culture of irony that comes really I, I experience coming from the literary scenes in 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 Polish culture um so so I mean you you asked him about pussy riot who's you know using um you know, kind of one of their their most I think I, they are both, you know, a sort of musical group, a political group, but I think they, you know, they, they, I think about them as performance artists um, who identify strongly with visual culture where you use some of, some of the ideas from pop art um, where you take a, a recognizable symbol and kind of push it to its maximum in order to subvert it. And I think you do see people doing that is, you know, they'll sort of say willfully, willfully untrue things they don't believe with the idea that you know that they don't mean it. Um, and there's also all kinds of ways in which sarcasm and irony have just been a part of um, literary writing, humor in, um, in Polish modern, modern, modernism, the discourses of Polish modernism, ranging from something that's obviously musical, like cabaret, um, and there are a number of cabaret songs that become like viscerally important for, um, for, for the... Um, movement, not necessarily because they themselves have anything smart or original to critique about the party, but because the function of irony um, and cynicism, as you point out, in cabaret makes some of those critiques less, um, um, less, yeah, it, it sort of creates an environment in which those critiques naturally, naturally move around ecology. I think also um, it's a way where people, language play is a way in which um, uh, uh, people are using music to do what um, a sociologist who studied this decade um, called um, the use of the symbols of power. Wait, now now I'm misquoting it. Um, The power of symbols and the symbols of power. So taking something like solid, I mean, this is one of the sort of clever moves of the solidarity movement itself is taking an idea that's central to Marxism, solidarity, and using it to undo um, state socialism, which of course is, you know, this is just one iteration of socialism as enacted in a modern nation state, but the idea is still there uh, that, you know, you're kind of undoing the master's um, uh, you're using the master's tools to to break the mass down the master's house, but I think that um, uh, yeah, I think there's a kind of um, 
jubilant. There's a kind of ephemeral aspect to a lot of these moments of irony um, that allow some of these this polysemic work to happen. So the fact that you can interpret things differently. Um, there are several songs where one artist calls out another artist um, in the way that we saw in um, this summer's um, musical releases in response to, or as a part of and in response to Black Lives Matter, artists sort of evaluating each other's political activism and, and you know, throwing shade at each other. Um, and that's, that's really going on as well. And it's a part of what gives certain discourses energy. Um, I think that there is a willingness among many of the organizers, um, especially younger ones who are subjects in my book, there's a willingness to fight and be wrong. Um, there's a willingness to be cantankerous just to cause a scene. Um, and there are musical genres where that really, um, that kind of provocative um, um, aesthetic really works you know punk is one um so they're um you know they're sort of symbols that people people play with um there's this incredible ludic quality to some rock anthems where they're playing with the fact that the polish premier who was an army general he always wore sunglasses um right and he had this kind of you know, a face that people like to make fun of with like sort of big jowls and and you know a character like that appears in a lot of rock anthems at the time, right? And so it sort of makes space for laughter. Um, we tend to think of, I mean, I, I think at the end of the day, um, I do believe that music is really important for political change. I just don't think that, um, I think there's so much more to it than whether it is part of what can be instrumentalized for um for political effects. So I think when we, we tend to um, want to know whether or not something actually got the job done, and I don't know that that's the most interesting thing to talk about when we talk about what music does. I think it's, it interacts with, organize, with social movements in so many different ways. It supports them. It's a foundation of them. It becomes a kind of Achilles heel when you have some of these nationalist symbols obscuring difference, right? Um, allowing people to imagine that there aren't hierarchies and that there are, you know, that it's an inclusive movement. Um, at the end of the day, um, Polish nationalism, of course, um, um, you know, paves the way for discourses of, of, of a nation where Catholicism is the, is the dominant um, political ideology. Um, um, so it changes the relationship it, it's paved a way for a post-socialist Poland in which um, solidarity movement that is has paved a way for a post-socialist Poland where um, where my my like many many communities are minoritized and there isn't an infrastructure to handle those differences um, and many of those seeds were sown by um, some of the figures in this book who at the time saw themselves as politically left and have moved further and further toward the right. Um, so I think, yeah, I think that um, irony is one of those places where we where we are challenged as researchers to stop thinking about whether or not we need protest anthems. What it shows is that we need music in many, many different ways, um, and that political change is not necessarily the result of singing, <laughs> right? But that's 
singing cannot be sort of extricated from its political context. Yes, I completely agree with you. I get very impatient with with um, the question of whether you know music works as a political a form of political action. I I think that that that's not a very interesting question. <laughs> you know, there's so many more interesting things to think about and as your book does. So um, I think that is a great way to, to sort of sum up this very interesting book you've written. And I really appreciate you being here to talk about it. Um, certainly it was a huge project for you. You uh, noted that you were doing a lot of your um, ethnography and, and uh, interviewing a decade ago. So now that this book is out, what is next on your agenda? So as you've suggested, and I'm so thankful for the care with which you read this, and I have to say, I, I think you brought a, a, a pers- it, it's a delight to talk about this book at a distance from, from the political moment in which it happened, but also, you know, since it has come out, but it's also really um, challenging and interesting to talk about it um, in the current political climate um, after, you know, sort of uproarious um, 2020 from the music and politics perspective in North America among many places. Um, but, you know, one of the things you pointed out right from the beginning is that sort of I became fascinated with media ecology um, and media networks. You know, I, I'm as interested in writing about, you know, uh, people in Jordan Hall in Boston listening to some of this music, um, members of the Polish-American community standing up and choreographing and, and claiming to weep while they listen to some of the movement music of solidarity, as I am in you know, a, a British artist um, who makes mostly electronic music, who composed his own track in response to um, Popiewuszko's death. And so one of the things that I just really, as a researcher, got interested in was how peculiar this history is because of the presence of bountiful archives of magnetic tape, cassette tapes um, held, deposited actually in the Solidarity Trade Union's archive itself, um, cassette archives curated by um, um, activists abroad, especially in emigre communities, um, people who'd been politically persecuted and had left Poland. Um, but also um, domestic archives, private archives, people sharing with me, like I mentioned, you know, mixtapes of lullabies, um, reels to reel to reels that have been copied um, among the, 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 the opposition itself to keep their own grassroots archive. Um, and so what I'm doing now is kind of following my nose into thinking about what kind of archive magnetic tape is not really I mean, I, I kind of consider this book a treatment of like magnetic tape as an archive for a social movement, but I'm thinking in broader history and thinking about like, the history of the portability of tape and thinking about music circulation and tape recording. Specifically, I'm, I'm researching how it came to be that something like the discipline of ethnomusicology uses tape to do field recording what is the history of field recording and how is it re- related to the history of tape recording? I'm interested here not just in institutional disciplines like ethnomusicology, but also something like oral history that uses tape all the time. I'm also interested in amateur, and this, this builds up kind of directly out of my social movement interest in, in what kind of amateur tape archives there are and what that reveals about how we imagine listening itself to be something that connects us to place. So I've been 
um, diving into a couple of particularly rich and um, compelling case studies um, that get me in and outside of the Polish context. So thinking again about center centripetal forces in music history and how we can kind of avoid getting um, getting pulled in by them. Um, but I'm I'm just enjoying um, and being challenged by um, yeah listening listening as an archival method and um, how many more questions it offers than answers. Well, that sounds absolutely fascinating. And I'm sorry we didn't get to talk a little bit more about, you know, that idea of media networks and cassette tapes, because that that was very interesting, um, the way that this music was circulated through cassette tapes. So I'm glad to hear that you are going to continue thinking about that, because that was definitely fascinating. So thank you so much for joining me today. Um, My name is Kristen Turner, and this is New Books in Music. And I've been discussing... um, Musical Solidarities, Political Action, and Music in Late 20th Century Poland with the book's author, Andrea Bowman. Thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you so much, Kristen. It was wonderful to talk with you.